Welcome back from a great weekend, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Delaney Howell, and my co-host is joining me now, Mike Pearson. Mike, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, gosh. It just mainly complained about the gray wetness. You know, I know. we got more moisture, which is positive, of course. We'll never turn down moisture this early in the growing season. But I go out there and I look at my cows and I'm just, I'm like, sorry, girls. It's just a mud hole. It's been like a week straight now, too. I'm ready for some sunshine. I know. And I think last forecast I saw, at least for central Iowa, was continued grayness perhaps through Friday. Ugh, great. Yeah. How about you? Anything fun this weekend? Um, I went down to Maryville, Missouri, which is where I went to college, and just hung out there. So not too much. Did you see anybody special in Maryville, Missouri? <laughs> yes. I went down to see my boyfriend. Gotcha, because you kind of robbed the cradle a little bit, right? I Lane's know, still in a little bit. Yeah. He is, yeah. We're, we're only two years apart in age, but a couple grades. So gotcha. it works out. Yeah, yeah, you're all the older and wiser one. That's kind of nice. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of wiser, is there uh, anything going on in the world that our listeners need to be wise about, Delaney? Well, we've been talking a lot about trade, and I personally think trade is interesting. I have an international studies minor, so I, I like to look out and globally see what's going on. And so today, the U.S. Trade Representative, an office of the U.S. Trade Representative, announced that Guatemala, of all countries, has agreed to eliminate its 12.5% tariff on U.S. poultry. So, you know, I didn't think Guatemala was a big country of um, importing poultry from the United States, but they're apparently the sixth largest U.S. poultry export market. And so last year, they imported about $82 million of U.S poultry and uh so that that's looking pretty optimistic for the poultry industry and kind of along with that this is really president trump's first major trade policy that has been pushed through during his administration so we're we've been waiting to see something happen and this is really the first big thing that he's done so that's exciting that is exciting and i think delaney this has happened before the uh the actual u.s trade representative has been uh, confirmed. Is that right? Yes. I forget the fellow's name. So. Lightser. Lightser. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right. So Still hey, that's, waiting on that. that's positive news, though. We got it some is. things moving forward. Well, uh, I'm what gonna... else do you have? Great question, Delaney. I'm going to take us north. I want to look up at Canada. There has been a push by uh, two groups, Encanto Potash Corporation, partnered up with the Muskegon First Nation, and together they've been working to develop a new potash mine on First Nation ground. Now, in Canada, and I'm not entirely familiar with the process, but there is this, uh, this act called the First Nations Commercial and Industrial Development Act, and they have now completed the process under that act for allowing uh, this thing to come into place. So the screwy part is this mine has to have specific regulations for the project and specific regulations for that piece of reserve land. But now they're, they're basically able to reproduce the rules that already exist for this type of things onto this on-reserve project. So effectively, this looks like it's going to move forward, it sounds like, before too long. And we don't really have a timeline set out here, but that mine is going to be developed, and uh, we should have another source of potash coming from north of the border, which hopefully would help put some downward pressure on prices. Well, in other international news, 
President Xi, which is China's current president, is set to come to the United States on Friday. So him and President Trump will sit down, talk trade, talk, you know, whatever else is going on. And it'll be interesting. Um, I read a quote here from the Morning Agriculture Political Newsletter, and uh, President Trump said, I suspect that G is a very confident fellow and probably thinks he's going to come and get some sort of. Oh, I'm sorry. This was a this was a White House senior advisor. But basically, the quote says that uh, both men are very power hungry and very powerful in their own nations. So it will be interesting to see who kind of gets the upper hand here on Friday. Yeah, kind of. Uh... Oh, gosh, what do they call that? An irresistible force meets an immovable object. Yes. You know, I guess mm-hmm. we'll see who prevails. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully Trump will serve uh, serve some corn-fed ribeyes. I G think that's and, the plan. I think that's the plan. Let's get let's get them to develop a little bit of taste for beef, because we already know, Delaney, <laughs> they do have, over in, in Asia, and in China in particular, quite a taste for pork. They do. They mm-hmm. are massive pork consumers, and we did get uh, word the U.S. Uh, quarterly hogs and pigs report was out. And uh, as of March 1st, there were 71 million hogs and pigs on U.S. farms, up 4% from March of last year, but down 1% from last quarter, December 1st of 16. So it does seem like, we, of course, we've grown quite a bit since last year, but perhaps that growth is starting to stabilize. Um Interesting fact, from December 16th through February, so this last quarter, U.S. hog and pig producers weaned an average of 10.43 pigs per litter. That, that's an incredible number. That just shows mm, how definitely. efficient we've gotten in pork production. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, what else you got? Yeah, so just one more quick story here. And it's like kind of ironic, I guess, that we're talking a lot of trade today because Later on, we're going to have an interview with Scott Heater, and he has done multiple trade trips. Um, but before we get to that, Scott Gottlieb is the current nomination for FDA commissioner, and his hearing is confirmed and set for Wednesday. So still still waiting for all the nominations and confirmations. Sonny Perdue is still out for debate, and Leitzer is still out as well. So Moving through the cabinet positions here, but hopefully we start to see some of the at least key people in agriculture have confirmations. Right. Yeah. Hopefully those two and uh, Gottlieb. And then, of course, you know, I'd love to see Governor Branstad be confirmed as the ambassador to China. Yeah, that's just one of many positions that are out there yet confirmed. Right. Yeah. Well, let's see, Delaney. I know this isn't going to make a lot of people's day, but should we talk the markets? Yeah, I guess we ought to. All right. Well, and, you know, decent news on the corn side. May corn closed up three and a half cents at 367 and three quarters. December corn up three and three quarters at 392 even. On the soybean side, May corn dropped seven and three quarter cents. End of the day at nine and nine. 38 and a quarter. November beans down three and three quarters. Close the day at 950 and a quarter. On the wheat side, May wheat up one and a quarter at 427 and three quarters. December wheat up three quarters of a cent at 474 and a half. Jumping over to the livestock side of the ledger, April live cattle were down a nickel, closed at 119.950. June live cattle unchanged on the day at 110.87 and a half. In feeder cattle, holy cow, May feeders up 
one dollar twenty seven and a half cents closed at one thirty two seven hundred August feeders up ninety cents closed at one thirty three seventy five in lean hogs despite some of the pressure from that uh, larger hogs and pigs report April lean hogs were up a nickel at sixty five sixty seven and a half May lean hogs down sixty five cents closed the day at sixty nine eighty five Delaney Howell. Who are we talking to? Can you tell me again who we're uh, interviewing this afternoon? Yeah, of course. Well, Scott Heater is from my neck of the woods in southeast Iowa. He's been a family friend for a really, really long time. I think we talked about it in the interview, but gosh, I think since I've been 10 now, we used to show livestock, um, specifically heifers. And Scott was always there helping me fit and clip, and he raised livestock for a long time, show cattle. But Scott has been an, an, a leader in the industry, in the beef industry. And so he's served on multiple boards, been involved in the U.S. Meat Federation. But I'm going to just shut up now and introduce Scott. Joining us now is Scott Heater. Scott has been a longtime family friend of mine. We used to raise or he used to raise show cattle and we would he would help us fit and clip and groom. But Scott has done a lot of other things for the beef industry besides raising show cattle. And he just recently relinquished his chair position for the Iowa Beef Industry Council. Is that right, Scott? That's correct. So, so before we get into all of that, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about you, your history in agriculture, what you've done for the industry, that kind of a thing. I had the opportunity to grow up here on our family farm in southeast Iowa, south of Wapalo. Um, started, uh, took over the family farm in 1980 doing the row crops, and that's when we started our cattle herd. And uh, just started with a small herd to run on some pasture acres that we had here on the farm. Worked out extremely well. Uh, kind of upgraded our program in the mid-80s after I learned, went to AI school and started doing artificial inseminating in our cattle program. And kind of escalated into, as Delaney referred to earlier, as some of the club calf industry, and we we participated in that for the majority of the last 30 years, probably. Uh, our program also involves some embryo work and some purebred stuff. And we really enjoy the, the cattle program. And most of all, I've really enjoyed working with the young kids like Delaney as they come up through the years and age and working with them with their 4-H or FFA projects. So we've had a great time doing that. Um, in 1999, I got involved with the Iowa Cattlemen's Association. In 2000, I started sitting on their board as a director. Um, a few years later, I was elected to be regional vice president for the Cattlemen's Association. And shortly after I had turned out with that position, um, was com- was contacted by Nancy Begner with the Iowa Beef Industry Council and started serving on the Iowa Beef Industry Council board, where I had the opportunity to serve um, during 2016 as the chairman and over the five years that I served on that board, I had great opportunities of traveling around the world representing the Iowa Beef Industry Council and the great product that we provide here out of the state of Iowa, the great beef product we provide. Well, now, Scott, tell us a little bit, what is the purpose of the Iowa Beef Industry Council or the, the IBIC? The IBIC is responsible um, for collecting the federal checkoff, a dollar per head checkoff. And that is solely how they are funded is is through that checkoff program. Of course, as a uh, majority of the beef industry knows in the state of Iowa, we have just reinstated the Iowa checkoff to go along with that. And the Beef Industry Council will be responsible for those funds and utilizing those funds to increase the value of 
Iowa beat. How does it do that? How do you guys use these dollars? Because the the checkoff is split, correct? 50% between the federal and 50% between Iowa? That's correct. So when we collect the dollar federal checkoff, we have to submit 50 cents of every dollar goes back to the federal program. And and that's used at the national level for advertising and and for export markets and trying to fund those markets or, or connections in those countries with the export. And part of that funding goes and helps with the, uh, an organization called the U S meat export federation. And over the years, I actually had an opportunity to serve on that board also and, and to, to visit with those people and their outstanding program that they run. So it's a 50, 50 deal. We keep 50 cents in the state of Iowa. We do advertising and marketing programs, educational programs here in the state. And uh, also, like I said, and instances like myself, we had, quite a number of people had an opportunity to travel to other countries and try to promote our product that we raise. With the new administration under President Trump, what do you think that means for the beef industry? I mean, you've traveled to a lot of different countries and you know their customs and cultures and traditions, but do you think that they generally respect American beef and American products? I think we're very fortunate. I have never been anywhere where people aren't are very receptive, especially of, of, of the U.S. product that we provide, the high-quality product that we provide in beef in, here in the United States that we export to the, the other countries. We really have, a, you know, a great product, and we go out there and we try to export that. And the, the Trump thing is, you know, uh, we really worked hard on the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, with the other 11 countries or 12 countries mm-hmm. total in that program. We worked really hard with that program, um, trying to get the other countries to agree and what it did was balance out the uh, tariffs that we have to pay. And I'll give you a little example right now. We pay a 38% tariff to get our product into the country of Japan. And what that would have done was made all 12 countries pay the same equal tariff. So in all reality, it would immediately have dropped our tariff down to 25%, which is a great amount. And then over the years, lowered it as low as 8%. So TPP was extremely important. So as you know, um, now, President Trump is not in favor of TPP. He thinks that there ought to be other agreements instead, and it's kind of canceled the ability for us to get into that program. So a little disappointed there. Um, and other other programs that he's talked about, like NAFTA. NAFTA has been great for the agriculture industry in the, in the United States, and, and uh, there's a lot of good trade agreements in those programs um, that we really need, but we don't know what he's going to offer. So maybe it will be more of a level playing field, maybe better than what we had in the past. So we'll give him a chance, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's uh, that's all you can do when we're dealing with these massive international agreements is, you know, see how they all shake out. Looking yep. looking out into the future, Scott, now that you're, uh, you're no longer, are you still on the board at IBIC? No, I am no longer on that board. Okay. When you look out at the uh, oh, at the picture going forward, what has you most excited about the future of, of U.S. beef, domestically or internationally? Well, I think we have – I'll start on the international. I think the, the topic that all of us have been talking about here recently is the appointment of our Governor Branstad to, to go into China. Um, I've had an opportunity to travel to China. We currently do not have beef trade with China. They have – they have a trade barrier against beef in the United States. Not that we don't trade other products like the other ag products like corn and soybeans and pork, but beef kind of got caught up in a political 
play there years back, and we are not allowed to trade beef. But I was allowed to travel over there and observe their programs and observe their marketing systems. And I'll tell you what, with our governor having the opportunity to go over there as as an ambassador to that country, I think that opens up some pretty big doors for us. I know he's been a loud spokesman for Iowa industry. I've had a chance to travel with him to other countries on trade missions, and, and he's a great spokesman for our product. And I think that's a big opportunity is to open that market up in China and I'm not going to say it's just going to happen quickly, but we really believe that uh, it's a big benefit to have him there to try to open that market back, beef market back up for us in China, which would be a tremendous, you know, a tremendous market when the number of people that they have. Yeah, serve a couple uh, corn-fed ribeyes, and I think they'll be on our team pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you got the key there. That corn-fed product is tremendous. It don't matter where you travel internationally, you know, and, and I guess one of my favorite stories here was last year in February, I had an opportunity to go to Costa Rica and we were at a restaurant in Costa Rica and I'm sure they selected it for us to go there for a reason, but uh, we were served ribeyes that were processed right here in our new Iowa premium beef facility in Tama. So wow. that was a fresh product. They're able to get it down there chilled. It's never frozen. So we had a great product that, you know, that's part of the, uh, the, uh, partnership with Cisco and they do a tremendous job of getting our product down there in a hurry so those people can enjoy Iowa corn-fed beef right there in in uh, in Costa Rica and Costa Rica you know is half of their national uh, income comes from tourism so it's extremely important for them to have a good product down there and they have done a tremendous job of getting getting our product down there and it was it was kind of you know kind of made you Puff your chest out maybe a little bit to know, hey, that's Iowa corn-fed beef they're serving in this restaurant in Costa Rica. You bet. You bet. It's neat to see how it spreads around the globe. Now, closer to home, Scott, when you look at, when we hear these statistics that, you know, there's there's more people doing the meatless Monday, there's, as people get older, they tend to eat less red meat. What are your thoughts when you look out at domestic demand. Is there an opportunity as we go forward to chew through these uh, larger cattle supplies? Well, we ho- we always hope so. We keep that hope alive. But as you know, uh, domestic sales in beef has been pretty flat for the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. It really hasn't changed a whole lot. We haven't dropped as much as people uh, think. And, and I think that's an opportunity. You know, we just, I mentioned a little bit earlier about the uh, reinstating the Iowa checkoff. I mean, what a great opportunity by taking those dollars. So I do have to tell you, with the national checkoff, we can't promote Iowa corn-fed beef because that's not fair to the rest of the nation because we're using a national checkoff. But with the Iowa checkoff dollars, we can do that. So we're going to be able to go out there and promote this Iowa corn-fed beef here in the state of Iowa and promote the product that we raise right here in the state of Iowa with that new checkoff. So I really think that the future is, is brighter I mean, there's other things in there that must happen. As you know, uh, we we redid the food pyramid a couple times and had some difficulties keeping the red meat thing where we wanted on that part of the pyramid and servings. Um, but, you know, all in all, you know, it's been pretty balanced here in the United States for a long time, but we still got to keep working every day and every day. And to do that, I think we need to get out and do a better job of telling our story. You know, here's the product that we make. Here's how we raise it and try to promote exactly what we do here in the state of Iowa. On your various um, boards that you've served on, the Iowa Cattlemen's Association and also the Iowa Beef Industry Council, how much interaction did you have with other states of those similar level um, boards? Um, You know, probably more interaction with those boards from other states. As I mentioned before, I had the opportunity to serve on the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board. 
So there's a lot of representatives from the other boards around the states around us, and that that's a great opportunity to get a chance, you know, to get together. They have two annual two meetings every year, semi-annual meetings for the USMEF that invite all the board members. So you get together, great opportunities to meet your neighbors, you know, from the states around you, and have discussions. And a lot of those we work in, we can work together with, you know, on promoting the product here in the Midwest because we all really have corn-fed beef here in the Midwest. And uh, we've had some great opportunities. In fact, uh, you know, our marketing director and others at the Iowa Beef Industry Council have done a tremendous job. We have programs, uh, a program we called MINK, who was Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas, working together to promote our product here in the Midwest. And just recently, the state of Illinois has joined that group, so... So with, with those five states, we get Des Moines, Chicago, Omaha, Minneapolis, Kansas City, St. Louis, Wichita. You get quite a quite a bit of urban consumers. And, and that's exactly the reason it works real well together. And, and I'm not going to say we just did it there, but, but you hit it right on the head, Mike. I mean, they have more people, you know, three times more people in the city of Chicago than we have in the whole state of Iowa. So if we have an opportunity to go in with the state of Illinois and do a promotion in the Chicago area, we have an opportunity to reach more people than we have total in the in the state of Iowa, you know, on, on a campaign. And I have to say, uh, Brooke German's done a tremendous job. She's the marketing director up there at the Iowa Beef Industry Council. Um, she understands this social media stuff where I don't understand it that well, Mike. <laughs> but she's done a great job. And she tells me, you know, hey, we reached out, you know, in a 30-day period. We reached 2 million people in a 30-day period. Well, that's like reaching almost the whole population, you know, of the state of Iowa, or two-thirds of the population of the state of Iowa. What a great opportunity to do these things. And I will tell you this, these groups that we call MINK, and now it's MI squared NK, so the five states together. So we did a blitz in the northeast United States. Again, a high populous area with very few cattle in the northeast part of the United States. You know, and we reach out there and you get five, six, seven million hits, you know, on the advertisement. We just can't do that no matter how much we do here in the state of Iowa. How many times we cook at hy V, Mike, when you've seen us there or joined us in the past? And yeah. You can't, reach, you can't reach that many people, and this social media is a tremendous advantage. And uh, hats off to our group up there at the Beef Industry Council to do a tremendous job of doing that. Yeah, and I think that kind of leads to my next question. You've stepped down, so we're always looking for that next generation to come up, uh, young people who are willing to – take a little time out of their schedule and work for the industry as a whole. What's your advice for younger producers or younger folks involved in agriculture, even if they're not producers, to what's the best way to start that process of being involved? I'm going to say, Mike, that we have programs in the organizations I've been involved with, so with like the Iowa Cattlemen's Association. You know, we have a young leadership program. Uh, mm-hmm. Farm Bureau that I'm involved with also has the same type of program. Uh, um, and I believe Delaney's been involved in that in the past. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's a great opportunity for these young people to get out there and meet people that are involved in the industry and understand the industry from start to finish. You know, guys like myself, I'm cow-calf program. I don't understand all the feedlot issues and stuff unless I go visit with those people. And that's part of the young leadership programs that these organizations provide where we're able to get them in there and, and help them understand and and we finish that whole thing off with a visit to led legislators, you know, in Des Moines, so that they understand, you know, all the regulations that happen. Here's where we got to go visit with these people and get to know your legislators. Um, Delaney can maybe talk about that because I know that her brother Dustin and her both have been involved in that in the past. And you know, what a great opportunity for young people. And these are great programs provided by those associations. 
yeah, all the tools are there offered if you just take advantage of them. That's definitely apparent. Yeah, Delaney, you uh, have any other questions for Scott? Well, I mean, I'm obviously extremely interested in the international side of things. So, Scott, what countries have you been to with the either the U.S. Meat Export Federation or the Iowa Beef Industry Council? Um, in the Asia-Pacific area, I've been to Japan and South Korea and China. Um, in the central United States, I visited with uh, the people in Mexico, Panama, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, I'm trying to think so I don't leave some out. But anyhow, that's a majority of them. And, you know, the advantages that we have is, you know, the United States is such a producer of agricultural products. And you go to countries, and I'm going to use Japan as an example. You know, they they have 127 million people on a a small group of islands. They have to import 65% of their food needs into that country. So it's a great place. And, And Japan has been number one export market for beef for quite a long period of time, even though that Mexico gets pretty close to them anymore. So um, these are markets of tremendous number of people, and and we can't understand that until you go there. I'll give you an example. You know, the first time I traveled internationally, I went to uh, Japan, and we'd land, you know, and we're in Tokyo. Um, I don't know how a guy from the Midwest, you know, can relate to a population area of 40 million people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can't. We can't understand that. You know, they have, give you examples, they have large grocery stores, store chains that we visit over there and and this the largest one over there has seven stores in the city of tokyo their daily red meat sales is over a million dollars million u.s dollars a day Jeez. one store oh, no. chain in one area we can't relate to that you know in the united right. in Iowa, we sure can't relate to that south korea is the same way you know we went to uh, south korea and visited uh, with some people there at Costco's in, in Seoul, South Korea. And again, Seoul's not quite so big, only about 20-some million people, not 40 million. But the chains of, of Kohl's every day, they have 100,000 customers every day go in and out of Costco's in the city of Seoul. And they have $2 million in red meat sales daily in them stores. So we, we just can't relate to the volume. And you got to remember, again, South Korea, they're a little better off. They only import about 62% of their food needs, but um, great markets for the United States, great places to go visit. Uh, probably one of my favorite foreign countries is, has been uh, South Korea, and I really love the city of Pusan, South Korea, where it sits right there on the uh, on the bay and the Sea of China. So uh, a great city, a wonderful place to visit. Well, I think you've given a lot of optimism to international agriculture. I mean, it, it's kind of scary right now with administration and trade negotiations and just a lot of factors playing right now and it's been pretty volatile, but I mean, I think coming from your perspective, you give us a kind of a light at the end of the tunnel for agriculture. You know, there's hope out there. People, when they want a quality product, they're, uh, they're willing to go get it. And we've got that here in the U S. Yeah. And, you know, and we're very fortunate here, you know, we've the United States, the people, uh, the amount of money that they spend on their food, you know, their, their tangible, income that they can spend on food, you know, we've never been much higher than 15%. And right now we're at one of the lowest rates ever where we're back down around nine to 10% mm-hmm. of our tangible income spent on food. We visit these countries and you got to remember they run 30 to 40% of their income is spent on food. So they want a good high quality product. And I think it just fits together. If they got to spend that much money out of their income on food, they want a high quality product when they go buy that product. And I think that gives us a great opportunity. And I believe that's what we provide for them all the time. I'm very confident in the product that we produce here in the United States and especially here in the Midwest in Iowa. 
You bet, Scott. Well, hey, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. No problem. Thank you, guys. Hey, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. You know, he is an interesting cat. You see him just about, uh, or at least I've seen him, at just about every single uh, uh, cattleman's event I get the chance to go to. He's all over the board. He is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things we were talking about there was uh, getting young folks involved. You've got a little bit of firsthand experience with that, don't you? I do. So um, I am currently part of the Young Cattlemen's Leadership Program, and that's just for the state of Iowa, but it brings together, I mean, I really don't think they should call it young because there's people of all ages there, but it's, I guess it's young because it's people that are still getting their feet under them in the beef and cattle industry. And so we have a lot of sessions where we get to meet other people in the industry, other people in our in our program. And we've had a legislative session. We've had an introduction session. This summer, we're getting to go to a feed lot or a feed yard in uh, southeast Iowa. So it's a great program. I I mean, I don't have any livestock currently, but my dad still farms. And I think it's been great just to get a better idea of the industry. And, you know, someday I want to have livestock. And I think it's really beneficial to see what issues are affecting producers. You know, that's the key. And I think even for people who don't have livestock, having an understanding, especially in the world of media, how that industry functions is crucial yeah, because it's right. it's very different than it was, you know, 50 years ago when, you know, everybody had a couple steers on the farm that you'd process. Nowadays, we are a truly specialized industry and uh, we're very modern. Most, most are modern. We, yes, definitely. And it's really interesting, too, to see those who live or have a cow-calf operation versus having a feedlot, because we we really have always done feedlot and feed yard type of operation. I mean, we had cow-calf when I was really little, but that's not something I'm super familiar with. So it's interesting to get other people's perspectives and see what the issues are that are or what important issues there are for those types of producers. That's true. You know, I was talking to a feedlot operator up in East Central Iowa, and he looked at me and he goes, Mike, where do calves come from? And I you know, well, they come from a, a cow. And he goes, nope, <laughs> not in my place. They come from a truck. That's all I care about is that the calves can walk off a truck just fine. And that's true. He's not a cow-calf guy, just strictly a finisher. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's it's just interesting to see. You really have to uh, specialize in certain areas. And I think it helps agriculture, you know, produce a better product because we're very interested in learning more and learning how to make our operations better. Right. We, we get as the best we can with each person's operation, then the final product is phenomenal. You know, I was reading uh, Cassie Fish's blog earlier today, thebeefread.com, and, you know, we've got cattle that are grading right now 62 to 62.5%, and we're grading higher prime and higher choice than we have ever in history. So we're, we've come wow. a long way. We're seeing the same thing on the on the pork side and probably on the poultry side, though I'm not all that familiar mm-hmm. with that market. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. So we've got... A lot going on in the industry, Delaney. We also have a lot going on at Ag News Daily this week, don't we? We do. So tomorrow we're talking with Robert White. Is that correct, Mike? That is correct. Robert White was the uh, he was the speaker, the keynote speaker at the Cedar Rapids Celebration of Ag event. Has a fantastic wealth of knowledge on ethanol. He is a vice president at the RFA, uh, works under Bob Deneen there, and he's going to bring us up to speed on what's happening with E15 and E85 in particular. And those, and how those will affect the markets, too. Right, right. I mean, how much corn can we grind into ethanol? That's the question. 
Right. Well, that will be interesting. Well, I think that there's a few other things, um, hopefully in the, in the makings here. Like I mentioned last week, Kurt Dahlmeyer will hopefully be on with us sometime this week. I reached out to people at the National Biodiesel Board as well as the U.S. Meat Federation. So I think we'll have some great things on the docket for this week. Perfect. And everybody, if you're listening, do subscribe on iTunes and rate and review us and find us on Twitter at Ag News Daily and let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about who we should interview. 